Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 224. We're recording this live on November 4th, 2021. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello. Good to be here. Just in time. Yeah, just in time. We're we're actually rarely recording in on the same day as of now. Yes, uh, which is yeah. which is odd. Yes, we we've just lost. Uh, yeah, we just lost daylight savings time. So which caught me kind of su- by surprise as you messaged me saying we we're about to go live. And I'm like, but I'm still in my house and I still need to put my laptop on. Anyway, well, we, this we're is, all fine. This is why we do a thirty minute pre show. Uh, we, we do have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about whether or not remote working can foster innovation. And later, we're going to take some questions from the community about the most important questions you can ask a UX designer or researcher, as well as what a day in the life of a human factors practitioner looks like, as well as kind of, uh, you know, engineering and human factors. It's it's all all inclusive. We're going to talk about all of it tonight. Um, but uh, we got some programming notes first here uh 1202 the human factors podcast that is a show that you do barry it is certainly and but you've also come you also come to join me last week yes so, that, that's what this that's what this bump is for that you want to tell everybody about uh about your podcast and what we did last week yeah absolutely so we um my podcast is that is a more um interview of great and noble people within the human factors community and how could i have such a um um, such an audacious way of, of describing it if I didn't have you yourself, Nick, on to tell us more about uh, my listeners about how you run this podcast. So, um, yeah, so you came and joined me for um, a, a really in-depth interview. So if you want to know more about Nick and his motivations for uh, why did the podcast does this podcast, the stuff that goes on in the background to make the podcast, then come and have a listen at 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. And you can have a listen to Nick. Yeah, you you might have found it in your feed last week. That's what I was alluding to with a little surprise uh, last week's show. But um, yes, Barry puts on a tremendous show over there. Highly recommend going and listening to those, if not to hear me drone on, but to hear other great minds talk about their work. Um, We are now streaming on LinkedIn. So if you're watching us over there, hello. Thank you for watching us on this platform. It's brand new to us. I think we've only streamed one other time on LinkedIn. Um, and aside from that, I don't think we got much else going on. We've some conference coverage coming up, but we'll we'll get that out when we get that out. Anyway, we know why you are all here. You are here for the news, so let's get into it. Yes, it is time for Human Factors News. This is the part where we look all over the internet and talk about anything related to the field of human factors. Barry, what is our news story this week? So this week, we're looking at whether remote working can be better for innovation than in-person meetings. So fear of losing their innovative edge pushes many leaders to reject hybrid and virtual working arrangements. Yet the article from Scientific American um, suggests that hybrid and remote teams can gain an an innovative advantage and outcompete in-person teams by utilizing virtual brainstorming. Gleb Chipersky explores the discrepancy between leadership beliefs and scientific evidence. So the article suggests that leaders often fail to adopt innovative best practice because of cognitive biases, as in their own cognitive biases about the way things work. But research in behavioral science receives that the benefit in idea generation from a face-to-face brainstorming comes from two main areas. One involves idea synergy, where or where ideas shared by one participant help triggers ideas in other participants, so a cascade effect. The other is social social facilitation, or where participants feel motivated when they know they're collaborating with their peers on the same goals, so they're all working together. The article highlights that these benefits can come with counterproductive effects. An example is production blocking. That's when someone has the innovative idea during a group discussion, but other people are talking about a different topic, and the idea, idea uh, the uh, that idea, innovative idea gets lost in the mix. Many people are also impacted by a second major problem for traditional brainstorming, evaluation apprehension. Some members may feel worried about sharing their ideas openly because of anxiety about what their peers will think of them. So trying to do traditional brainstorming via video conference, which is what we've all had to do through the um, through this pandemic, is a poor substitute 
for the energizing presence of colleagues in a conference room, thus weakening the benefits of social facilitation. The author of the article promotes a seven-step model for asynchronous virtual brainstorming, where individual ideation is facilitated and moderated in isolation and shared anonymously, and then brought together at the end for a discussion. So a bit of a, a, a hybrid effect there. So having listened to that, Nick, what do you think? So when I picked this article during office hours, I thought it would be a great discussion since we brought up innovation a few weeks ago uh, during the it came from section of this show. Um, I believe we talked about like what is innovation. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it'd be a good springboard to talk about things like idea generation and the psychology behind brainstorming um, just generally. So I mean, we'll get into it a little bit later, but I mean, the focus here really seems to be more on the anonymous aspect of being remote and kind of utilizing that. And and really, in my mind, and I, I think the author is kind of making this point, too, it's I feel like all these things could be communicated in person with the right tools and the right leadership style as well, which kind of weakens their overall argument that remote working is better for innovation right so that that's kind of my general thoughts what so, about you mary yeah so i i don't know I, this sort of got my heckles up to a certain a certain extent because i think for similar reasons the because for me the real problem with the article is that it's equating the number of ideas produced um so that the, the quantity of ideas with the with the quality of the ideas so good innovation is not just and the number of ideas produced in a session it is um it, it's got to have a certain amount of quality and a certain amount of depth to to what you're doing to be able to take it anywhere um we sort of talked about this when when we talked about innovation it's more than just an idea and it's a, it's very much a it is an overused term at the moment um but for me it was also conflating that idea of if people are working from home um then they're, then they're more innovative and really that's not the case they're, they um the numbers that they were they were pulling out were again conflating the idea of innovation and employee retention. So yes, we have less innovation in organisations where people are leaving because without people there, you can't innovate. Um, but for me, I guess in in real in real time, real practice, and actually I was running such a group just today, remote group work, and I've done I've facilitated an awful lot of um, these sort of groups throughout the pandemic and we made use of some really good tools and there are some fantastic tools out there but it's just simply not as rich as in-person work and I think um yeah I think that bit's interesting fundamentally some people are just not cut out for doing that sort of brainstorming uh, group work so that goes to what you were saying in terms of facilitation you should be having the right people in the room who can do that sort of stuff um and also the facilitation that is is absolutely key um it's uh to be able to facilitate such a session have the skills to lead it to be able to make sure people can bring in their thoughts their ideas because they're in the room and you want to get their value out it is up to the chair or the leader or the um, um in in the agile uh, world they talk about servant leaders quite a lot and that's absolutely what they're meant to do they're meant to make sure that people can bring out what they do so they if you're on, if you're in a group, um, I said the author was in a group where the, these sort of things weren't happening. Then I would say it's it's as much it says as much as much as about them as it does about the group that they were leading. But the process they talk about at the end, I think, is a really good one. Um, the the, the seven step process that they do actually because it's similar to what I use myself. Um, you get people's ideas um, remotely, so you can pull some of these things together, and then you you have a, a physical event where you can. Pull them out if you've got a team that works well together then actually that that does a lot um it allows you to optimize time so and you could argue we use a somewhat similar process to pull together like the show notes for um for what we're doing so we, we do, do a lot of it um remotely um that type of thing and then bring it all together um so i like the process i just don't think that actually followed his argument yeah we'll we'll talk yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the article here towards the end. I do want to back up. I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about innovation itself. <laughs> define define innovation. I also want to talk a little bit about some of the background on brainstorming and idea generation. Uh, just from like an industry standard. So let's start with innovation, Barry. I know you have some thoughts on innovation. 
as illustrated by our discussion a couple weeks ago, get some pretty strong thoughts on it. I want to let's revisit that conversation here. What is innovation to you? So for me, innovation is the transfer of ideas from one domain to another. There are no truly new ideas out there in the world. That's not quite true. There are some, you know, there are step changes, but the vast majority of what people do is they see an idea in in one domain, say in my world in the in the defense domain, and then we go and apply it to um, to something where it's maybe not used so much. And the the true innovation then comes is how to adapt and mold that uh, that one use in one domain and make it applicable and to get the value in another domain. Nice and simple. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, there's there's so many definitions about what innovations is out there, right? Yeah. I you know, from from some of the pr- preliminary research I did for today's show notes, a lot of these definitions tend to focus on something like a creative process and they really focus on the need to innovate too, um and that's just to kind of keep disrupting the space that you're in. I think those fit pretty well with your definition if you think about it from just the basic level right you you need some sort of transfer ideas well there's a creative process that you can use to get those ideas from other domains uh and and to transfer it transfer it to another that's that's the creative process and then there's a need to innovate in in the sense that there's a problem that needs to be solved with some solution from elsewhere and i think I don't want to get into defining innovation because I think what you said is spot on. I agree with you entirely. It is very rare to find novel ideas that are not just uh, that that no one's you know thought of before. Yeah. So it, thinking of all that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say it, it is very much that. I mean, it's not necessarily because some people sort of take that and say, well, it's you know you're just looking complete ideas, but it might just be that inspiration from seeing what bit. So I've seen, I was talking to a web designer today who said, oh, I've, you know, some of the things we put in this web design is because I saw it, um, I saw a similar idea and um, on somebody else's web, uh, web page and thought, oh, could we implement something similar to that? So it's the, you know, it's that inspiration and therefore you, how do you, I've been inspired by this one thing, how do I implement that in, in a solution for that I'm working? Some might call it begging, borrowing and stealing, but we call it innovation over here. Absolutely tried. Yes. <laughs> so let's fact. <laughs> so, so I mentioned the creative process here. Let's let's actually talk about it. Um one sort of industry standard, there's not really I'm sure there's papers on it, but the industry standard is kind of a four-step creative process where you have this preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. We can kind of talk about each step individually. But following that process is the creative process, right? You have the preparation. You're you're looking at gathering all that information, sort of thinking about that inspiration that you were talking about, right? And and acquiring any knowledge that might sort of help solve the problem at hand. Mm-hmm. Then you have incubation. You look at all those ideas that you picked out in that preparation phase and, and basically let them marinate. Think about them. And kind of that's it, really. That's incubation. Then you yeah. then you get that aha moment, the incubate the illumination, sorry. So once you've thought about all this, you might finally connect the dots and go, okay, we can pull this from that other domain. Let's let's do it. And then the verification phase is really just vetting it to make sure that that implementation is carried out. So that's just again, kind of high level industry standard for creative process. And I think the seven steps that this article has, it fits really nicely with that. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Any, I want to go to you, Barry, any thoughts on the creative process itself? Any modifications? No, I don't think, I think it absolutely fits. The one thing that it doesn't mention though, that I think we and this is what what I what my big criticism criticism in industry at the moment is time that some of these things just take time to do um and and just can't be forced um so the whole preparation and incubation piece so the preparation I think is absolutely key that if you've if you're having a, a brainstorming session or you're having that sort of thing the more preparation you do so you can actually have things to hand and that type of thing then the better your session um uh, you'll get. So there's the military adage of uh, pride preparation prevents poor performance. Um, and 
And so that, that's absolutely key. And, but then the, that incubation piece, I often say that, uh, particularly to new staff members, you, you, you know, you'll, or new team members, that you'll probably come up with the, uh, the, the best ideas that you ever have while, you, while you're in the bath. Um, yeah. or you're doing, you know, you're, you're not under pressure. Your things will abstractly just come to you. And, um, it, and it's not in the, your bath time, as I, I tend to call it is, is it when you, you know, you, you, you've got the time for your just ideas to just sort themselves out, just to work through. And, um, and actually that's why you can't do it all in a day as well. I, I do like to try and have two day sessions when, when you look at this type of thing, because actually you, you having an ability to have a sleep actually sorts out a lot of that as well. Um, but that illumination moment, um, is the most fun part, I think. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. It's you start sitting there going that you got, you, you, um, and again, I was running in the workshop I was running today, I was trying to explain to, um, about two new members of staff about, cause they've never done anything like this before. And I was, I was like, the, we'll go through this and I can't tell you when we'll get to it. I can't tell you when we'll get to the, the answer of what we were doing, but when you, when it's there, you will know. And we came to it today. I was actually quite surprised. It was quicker than I, I thought it was going to be. Um, and we came to the answer. So we were coming up to, uh, to, to name a potential future product. And we came to it and we were like, it could be this. And everyone was like, yes, that's it. Yeah, exactly. I was like, great. That's an early coffee. That's brilliant. Um, but it was. And it, but and it was really nice for them to, when I sort of said, you know, it, it is that eureka moment. It, it is that piece where you'll turn around. And it actually happened. Um so I was quite pleased it would be like one of them performance anxiety. What happens if we don't perform today? Um, but he did. And, and it was quite nice to see it all seen on their faces, just how it works. So, um, yeah. and so now, so now we've gone into that verification phase of, right. Does it actually make sense? Um, which is tomorrow's job. Yeah. I mean that you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, one thing I'd add to that is, you know, from, from anecdotal evidence, you know, I've like stepped away from the work computer and I've been kind of, in my thoughts and <laughs> my wife will go, are you done for the day? And I'm like, they don't pay me to work. They pay me to think. And <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm always thinking. And so it's yeah. like, it, it's like hard to quantify exactly how much you work on a job because a lot of it in our domain is thinking about stuff. Yes. Right. And it's, it's, you spend a lot of that time in the incubation phase. So, you know, I'm thinking about processes, procedures, products that we can possibly, well, there's a lot of alliteration there that we can possibly implement. And it will be, you know, while I'm changing my kid's diaper or something. Is like, oh yeah, that's it, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> amazing absolutely. the places will be. It's the, um, I mean, we quite look. I guess lucky or unlucky uh, that both uh, me and my wife work in the same in the same business, doing the same thing. And so actually, we we, we can wake up in the middle of the night. And go, Have I've just solved it? We've got this, and then um, yeah, we we midnight discussions. Yeah, um, I I do want to mention briefly that there's modifications on this four-step process and we got through verification. Now there's the verification I've seen split up into other steps where it's like the sort of recurring testing, right? Test, validate, test, validate, push out. And it's kind of like a recurring cycle. I do want to mention that because I know there are some graphics out there that do illustrate that. That's what we're talking about with verification. We're testing it. And once it has been verified, then we move on. So why don't we get into the article discussion proper? Because I think there's there's a lot to unpack here from this argument uh, that remote working itself is better for basically innovation, for this creative process that we're talking about here. Yes. So let's talk about it. You got some points you want to bring up? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there is, you cannot deny um, that actually the whole flexible working piece, the ability to work from home has been um, hugely advantageous. And we've talked about this before on, on previous uh, previous episodes, that, um, that you know, the ability to not not quite have such a such a long commute, um, better work life balance, and all, and all that sort of stuff has been has been really good, and, and it's been proven to employers that people, if they're working from home, they're not just sitting there drinking the coffee, having, having you know watching TV, and uh, people are actually productive. But I think there is still a whole lot of issues that we um, that we need to to engage with. I think there's legal issues and sort of moral issues as well. So in terms of flexible working itself. 
it absolutely should be used. I mean, for for us now, it's a, it's a standard. If you don't need to be in the office, you can work from home. That you know that that's not a drama at all, um, and and encouraged. Um, but it's got to be done where it's pro- possible and practicable for both the employee and employer, because it is still a state of mutual trust. Um, technology means that we can do it, and as we're proving, you know, we, 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 even with what we're doing tonight, um, but it doesn't mean that we always should. Um, we've got to we've got to strike that right balance. One thing that's coming to light for me at the moment um, in talking to human factors colleagues and people who are asking advice about setting up from home is maybe in people in the, uh, don't have the appropriate housing to to have a home office that they can't have that space that is nicely away that they can't that there's nowhere that they can close the door on that there is no standards at the moment for um for a home office to be to have an appropriate desk with um appropriate IT equipment um the right sort of chair and and employers don't have uh, ne- necessarily have in place the funding or the ability to buy all that sort of stuff from for the employee and almost what right does the employer have to to dictate what you have in the home as opposed to what you know in, in if you're going to the office they have absolute right to say you, you will use an appropriate desk and, and and they have the legal obligation to provide the chair if you need it and all that sort of stuff but if you're at home there are still even now sort of 18 months to two years into this pandemic there's still people i know who are working off the dining room table who are working off an ironing board which i think still think is a bit mad though it's adjustable in height so it, I, I get a bit of sense but not using necessarily appropriate chairs and things like that and the biggest thing for me actually is mental health issues there is still um a lack of understanding truly about the mental health impact of, of being at home all the time and not you know not not going out and engaging with different people and being able to share what you're doing the big thing about going to the office um, or at least going to a co-working environment is you're sharing like-minded goals with like-minded people. Um, and if you're at home, then maybe your your family don't want to know about what you're doing all of the time. Um, you know, or if you're hiding yourself away from them, then you're actually still not, not at home. You, you may be polluting that home environment. So this article sort of highlights that there's, um, that it, 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 it kind of conflates the idea that, um, Working from home gives you better innovation, but actually none of the evidence that it, it delivers actually shows that it's actually you're delivering better innovation. The article itself sort of gives you that um, that people are more likely to be retained in jobs. Brilliant, yes, but just because <clears throat> they're working at home doesn't necessarily mean that they're innovative. They're just working um, and and put, putting more ideas onto the table. Well, again, as I said, the just because you've got more ideas on the table doesn't mean it's better innovation. Just means you've got you, there's more plates on there. So. Yes, I still think I think there's a long way to go in still understanding the value of the, the getting that right balance of flexible working. Um, I think absolutely it's a good thing, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the the, the premise of the uh, of this article is is correct. Yeah, let's. I mean, let's talk about some of the the arguments that the article brings up. Right, they they bring up research from behavioral science, and I I know you said a lot of this in the blur, but I think it bears repeating, especially as we. Yeah have the context now of innovation and the creative cycle, right? So, I I mean, there's this idea generation, basically, that it's uh, two two areas. The idea generation comes from two areas, right? It's the idea idea synergy and the social social facilitation, right? So, So, one dealing with how you share ideas and and how ideas from one person might help spark ideas in another person. And then the social facilitation bit is the motivation behind uh, collaborating with others, right? With the same goal in mind. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. They argue that there's counterproductive effects from these uh, sort of idea generation, uh, I guess, whatever you want to call these. These are uh, brainstorming idea generation principles. I don't know what, what you want to call them. So so basically they mentioned that in terms of this counterproductivity, you're looking at production blocking. Again, you mentioned this in the blurb, but it's basically when you have an idea, but but everyone else has moved on to something else and you don't want to jump into that conversation with that idea yet because it's not socially acceptable to jump in and be like, I have this idea about something that we talked about before. 
and I I get the argument there, but write stuff down. Like that, it's a process thing. Like it, it's good facilitation. The yeah, again, exactly. It, it, this is why God invented post-it notes. Um, <laughs> everybody has a post-it note. If you don't have an appropriate time to jump into the conversation, you should know uh, because you should be told. You know, whoever's facilitating it, or just from experience. Then um, write it down, slap it down in front of you, and, and at the appropriate point, pick it up. Or you get to the end and say, well, actually, you guys have all said your piece. I want to talk about this. Right. Um, and, and the facilitator should be, you know, a good facilitator will say, one more round. Who has something that they haven't said before? Yeah. You know, if you have an idea, it's also setting the stage. If you have an idea, write it down on a post-it note. We'll revisit it. I promise. And having that promise and the trust that your idea will get heard in those things, in those uh, idea production phases is valuable, right? Having having a, uh, a good facilitator. I want to talk about this pessimistic, optimistic workplace brainstorming struggle. They talk about this in, in terms of optimism being processing verbally, spitballing half-baked ideas on the fly. This is what is traditionally thought of as brainstorming. To me, it sounds more like an introvert, extrovert, how do people communicate type of thing. Maybe that's what they're getting at here. But there's, for me, like I'm I'm an internal process guy. I think about things by myself. And once I refine that idea, then I spit it out where somebody else might just be talk, 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 talk. Oh, there's an idea. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between these two because you know maybe maybe the implicit internal person might think that that spitballed idea is well thought through and vice versa somebody may not put somebody who's just spitballing ideas out there throwing ideas out there may not give yours as much weight as you deserve because they might think it's just something that you're throwing out there so there's this mismatch between sort of I guess, communication styles, which can contribute to the brainstorming. And that's another argument that they use. If everybody's thinking through, if everyone's thinking through these ideas virtually and putting them all down, then they're all on even footing. And I think that's, I think that's the argument that they're trying to make here between the pessimistic and optimistic approach. Yeah, but I think I would go back to again. I, I guess I go back to facilitation because, yeah, I, mean, I tend to be more the optimist. I I do the um, just whilst I, I will co- go into a session with some ideas that I that I thought through. I'm also more than happy to sort of think as I talk and and develop some ideas that way as well. Um, but it's knowing if you've facilitated the group right, you will you should have a mix of them type of people in the room anyway if you if you pull the right sort of group together i mean sometimes it's just not possible to to fully know i get that but if you've right. if we're talking about well facilitated groups then you will have invited your hopefully no more than 11 including yourself into into that group um and allow you to pull that together and you you should have a at least an idea of, of the different type of people that you've got in the room and if you pulling you know maybe people aren't talking very much so if me and you were in a room and and you were being a bit quiet in the corner, I would, I'd be quite there saying, Nick, have you got something you want to contribute? Um, exactly. And and allow, you know, because when you're talking about the more introverted um, people, then they, they feel like they need almost permission to speak um, or, you know, encouraged to bring that idea forward and things like that. And it's up to the facilitator to do that. Um, yeah. What what you're talking about there is evaluation apprehension. That's when somebody in a more junior role or somebody basically that feels a little self conscious about their ideas being shared openly, um, whether it's anxiety related or what their peers think. You know, I think that's that's another sort of argument that this author is using in saying that that is effectively eliminated when you work from home. And again, it's. It's all about that facilitation. This to me screams bad leadership because yeah. you should foster an environment where people feel comfortable sharing their ideas. You, you know, it's like there's no bad ideas here. That is something that you should communicate and you should stick by that because uh, as people answer these 
or throw out their ideas. You don't want to dis you don't want to be dismissive of anybody's ideas because that's that's antithetical to the sort of you know the the activity that you were doing in that moment. Yeah, and the what's interesting there it says you know it makes the highlight of low status junior group members actually I've had some very senior stakeholders um, part of the thing who won't contribute because they don't want to look stupid in front of junior people um, or they don't want to look stupid in front of clients or, you know, that type of thing. And so actually, I don't think that, again, that's not restricted to a particular group of people. It's um, some people are nervous about sharing their, um, their ideas. And rather than focusing too much on this, it is a facilitation, but it's also, you know, you've got the idea of uh, the way you develop a new group. You go through the forming, storming, norming, performing stages. Um, and this is also part of that, of, of allowing whoever is facilitating or leading that group to take the group, if it's a new group, through them stages so you get through that performing piece and people can perform to the best of their ability. Um, again, I think facilitators are probably getting a hard time from us tonight, but it's it's such an important job that's, un, that's underrated. The people don't really put is. enough effort into, into it. You, you think you can just chuck a brainstorming session together and um and it'll just happen and and the magic happens and actually there's an um going back to what you said earlier about the preparation piece um it getting that you know that the if you do enough prep really good preparation then you'll get some really good outputs but the preparation needs to be there and it's all down to facilitation yeah so so all these arguments that i just mentioned these are from the author of the article here they basically use these to outline the argument that yes these can build teams they can kind of make sure that everyone's on the same page they can encourage collaboration people feel good about their participation but they argue that this maximizing innovation can occur if you do things remotely and they <laughs> they have a simple seven step process would you like to go through that process Barry <laughs> <laughs> not really just high um, level high level so, it's a, so step one initial idea generation so the you generate them ideas and have an online collaborative tool so you know that could be a, a simple um, textual document or whatever um but you can have a digital co-working meeting um and you're looking on just basically slamming in as many ideas as you possibly can and also looking at the contradiction between ideas um but what they should be is anonymized and the so that 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 gets away from the evaluation apprehension piece, or the the well, the author says that it'll get away from that. If you're apprehensive about putting it in, then I'm, I don't think anonymizing actually makes that much of a difference. But anyway, we'll come back to that. So then you do a second step two, which is the facilitator categorizes ideas, brings them together, so cleaning them up, um, and then everybody can go in and evaluate all the ideas at step three. So they anonymously commenting on on every idea and presumably putting pros and cons and that type of thing. So then for step four, you can then have a, idea, a revised idea generation. So another sh um, idea sharing session, reevaluating the old ideas, but also maybe generating new ones as well. Um, then you go through another cleanup stage, just like what you did at, did at step two. So um, put, pulling them together, categorizing them, et cetera. Um, and then you have another evaluation of the revised ideas again. So it's basically two large uh, generation cycles. And then at the end, you get together and discuss them. Um, so again, you could do this digitally or you could do it um, face to face, um, but finalize, finalize which ideas should be moved forward uh, towards implementation. And that then you can plan them and, and go into all that sort of stuff as well. So whilst it's seven steps, I think it's two large cycles followed by a, um, um, a, a review and planning meeting. Yeah. Hey, do you remember when I said that now in industry, there's typically a review cycle in there in the creative process? Yep. Here it is. There we go. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. Look, I, 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 go I ahead. Think, I, yeah. I think what, like, like I sort of said when I did the, um, did, did the initial article, I, I, I quite, I've got no problems with the process really because it's not dissimilar to what we do on a day to day basis anyway. I don't, I don't think that the idea behind, I don't think the, the anonymous side of things necessarily provides the value, provides the value or, or things that, that the author suggests. Um, because actually there is a value in if you've got a good team and you understand the team and you've introduced the team together, knowing where a comment's coming from, coming from 
is as valuable as the comment itself. So if a an engineer suggests that you can't have a certain um, valve in place on that design because of a flow, if I if I said that, people might think it's looking from an aesthetic or a um, um, an HCI perspective, but actually knowing it's come from a systems engineer who actually understands how the system actually works, um, say on a, on a water flow or a steam flow, something like that, that gives it a much different perspective. Um, so yeah, this idea of anonymization that is the panacea to everything, not convinced. Um, but fundamentally, I mean, the, the idea is about having a couple of generation cycles um, followed by a, a finalization thing. That's almost fairly standard i think the yeah the idea of doing it remotely yeah okay yeah if there's any one takeaway from this article or from our discussion tonight i would say that the facilitator is key i don't think the environment is key i think it's absolutely to do with the facilitator and i think you know you and i are both <laughs> in agreement there do you have any other closing thoughts on this article before we get out of here and get into the next part of the show yeah, I do think the the biggest thing is now that this this hybrid working, this working from home, working from the office, trying to get that balance right is such a rich topic at the moment. And it's up to all of us to talk and feedback um, about how it works. I think there's still some big hitters around how do we uh, best work from home, certainly from an ergonomics perspective, when we're looking at uh, best working and how to best support um, workers from home. Um, and how does an employer uh, deliver their responsibility? Because the employees are still responsible for their for their employees. How do they still deliver their legal, legal obligations without invading your your home privacy space? Um, but innovation is such a a, a cool thing to do um, that um, as many processes you throw throw about it, it's still about having the cool time in the bath to come up with the bing moment. I agree. I don't do this often enough, but I'm going to answer the question to the episode title does remote working foster in innovation in our view no it's all about the facilitator <laughs> all right well thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic and thank you to our friends over at scientific american for the news story this week if you want to follow along join me on office hours every monday where i find these news stories and we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog you can also join us on our slack or discord for more discussion on these stories we're going to take a quick break We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We picked up a couple patrons last month. Uh, always happy to have you here. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Just so you are all aware, we are two patrons away from being completely self-sustainable and uh, not take any out-of-pocket costs. I'm going to say that until we get them. Uh, <laughs> you know, these we do pay for the show ourselves. I mean, monthly sound card fees, annual website hosting domains, uh, the website capability anyway it's all it's all out of pocket uh mostly now no well no longer mostly out of pocket thanks to patrons like you patrons like you do keep the show running so thank you all so much for your continued support uh we're gonna switch gears and uh get into this next part of the show we like to call it came from it came from that's right. It came from this week. It is all Reddit. That's okay, though. It's the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, please give us a like to help other people find this content. For now, uh, we might have time for two. We might have time for three. Let's just see how they go. I want to get into this first one here. This one is from uh, Breadfruit Vegetable Five on the Human Factor subreddit. This is a discussion topic, so it's perfect for the show. 
engineering, and human factors. They go on to write, a common issue seen in product development is the common ground between engineering design and human factors engineering. When given the task of improving a simple product, such as a urinalysis collection container for pregnant women, the problem gets very complex when human factors gets involved. As an engineer, it's easy to factor out complications such as uh, such as sterility and manufacture process of a new product, but the justification of human factors changes uh, to a simple product is more difficult. Do you have any opinion from a human factors background on how you attach such a problem and what could be cha- changed on a simple design uh, as such and justification for such? So look, this is using a very specific problem space here, your analysis collection container. But the problem still remains, or I guess the discussion still remains. A seemingly simple product can be viewed from two different lenses, engineering and human factors. How do you reconcile the two? What are your thoughts from the human factors perspective, Barry, and the engineering perspective, if you have one? So, yeah, I, I guess I do wear both hats. So it's it's interesting that from an engineering perspective, it's really easy to break it down and say, well, you know, in this type of thing, all you're doing is collecting um, urine from a from from a person. I mean, how hard can that be? It's just the movement of um, liquid from one container to another. Um, and if you look at it from that very sim- simple perspective, then yes, as soon as we start talking about human factors issues, like, well, how are you going to use it? How are you going to reach? How are you going to hold it? How are you going to uh, make sure it stays sterile? So the actual, um, if you're doing um, analysis, then, you know, you, it's actually a decent sample. How do you make sure it doesn't spill? How do you make sure that um, you can actually be, you know, it is, it said it, here it's for a pregnant lady. So how can she actually see that she's using it properly? How can um, How can we make sure that actually, it's not male engineers who are designing stuff for um, for female use and actually making sure that there's no in, in inherent biases and, and things like that. I think it's it it is a constant issue that I think we have you know take out that that specific thing. But when we're talking about how to when I've worked in fast jets and how to interpret data that you're seeing on a, on a fil- on a, on a display, the whole point of when you start pulling a a user perspective onto any sort anything that you're you're developing. I just don't understand why it isn't obvious that you have to take the user-centered approach. When you, they're the people who are going to have to use it. They're the people who are going to have to engage with it. They're the people who are going to have to um, have that. Um, and yet we get, we have this this idea that, um, and I've seen it so many times where um, pure engineering teams um, are sat there saying, well, we've got to make it so, it's out, so the system works. Uh, we've got to make it so that the system is functions and it's like and they don't we, we seem to struggle between the difference between um a system being functionable and a system being operable um and and the the operator is just seen as a as a, a um as an annoyance as, as, as a triviality so from my perspective what i spend a lot of time doing here is is working with people and bringing people into into groups i like the agile group principle so in this case i'll be bringing the engineer and the users and and clients, whatever, into the same room. So we don't we get away from, and I think sometimes we as human factors operate, uh, practitioners have been guilty of this in the past, where we go and talk to users, and then we give the engineers the uh, the the abbreviated or our perspective of the user's problem. Sometimes it's really quite valuable for us to facilitate um, sessions where the where everybody's in the room and so we can we we have a two-way discussion in that respect so fundamentally for me it's about um bringing all the um, all the audiences all all the voices to the same room so we can so people can hear firsthand of what the problems are and therefore um, can start focusing on on the the whole solution rather than just trying to abstract a um a systematic solution yeah i want to elaborate a little bit more on that whole point of who you bring to the room, right? Because the ultimate goal should be engineers trust you as the human factors practitioner that you've thought through these issues. And so you can hand it off, communicate it to them effectively, and they'll build it the way that you want it to be built. Now, that's not to say that you don't include them in the process to build that trust, and that's incredibly important, right? Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you're including them um, bringing them along for the ride so that way they can see all the questions that you're asking and get that context 
that, oh, yeah, there's there's a lot more to this. Yeah, it's fairly obvious from a human factors perspective that you need to consider all these things about the user. But again, that's how we're trained. That's how we think. I can, you know, and it's it's very easy on the other side from from an engineering perspective to see a requirement. And this is why requirements writing is so important, too, as you consider the human in all this, right? Because if you, yeah, like you said, right, the requirement, need a cup to hold urine. That's the requirement. But if you say, you know, start writing requirements like user needs to be able to hold cup. User needs to be able to see cup. <laughs> cup cannot be sterilized, right? You have all these additional requirements that help define the product. Then you are constraining that design even more because Occam's razor, they'll take the easiest path available. They'll just make a cup yeah. and it's not going to be usable. And that's that's kind of the the relationship between the two, right? You need to help define the product more through some of those requirements that get at the user-centered uh, design, right? <laughs> and so having that, I think, will help with um, some of that communication bit. Now, this, this Reddit post specifically asks for, you know, the justification of human factors changes to a simple product. It's difficult. And basically, how do you get involved at that requirements phase and and sort of communicate those requirements to the developers. And I think you nailed it spot on. You bring them in and you include them in the process so that way they see. Because the next time a product gets developed, then those people will say, oh, wait, we need the human factors people in here because they're going to consider all these other things that we didn't even look at. Yeah, I, I think that's it. Any any other thoughts on that one? That's a good question. Well, just to, Yeah, I mean, just to continue your almost that line of the, the bit that you just said there, which I thought was absolutely key is it's easy to look at this as just one problem as one product. And I spend a lot of my time firefighting things that have gone wrong. Um, and it often involves its communication breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. But if you've got a really good team, then yes, the first time you do stuff will be difficult. And that's where us as human factors as practitioners, we are often the glue that holds a lot of project or wider, bigger project teams together. And that's because we are more than happy to go and talk to three, four different teams and bring them, bring it together. But that's because the, the true value of that is actually not that product. It's the next one. And if you're, if you've got the same sort of team working together and they then trust you, they've seen the way that you work. You're not taking them on a merry dance or anything like that. They know that you, that what you're doing is not some uh, mystic science uh, or mystic art. Sorry, it's actually, it is grounded in science and, and engineering practice. It's just a different viewpoint. Then they're more than happy to say, oh, actually, no, I've seen that Barry's done that. Um, yeah, we don't need to say it. We, we trust it. We'll go with it. We know where he's coming from. Um, and so it is, a, it's an education piece as, as much as anything else. Um, but you, it's just as much as... Uh, the actual hard engineering when um, often gets a lot more weight when it comes to um, requirements arguments because of people still don't understand necessarily what it is that we do. So it's up to us to be bigger and better. Evangelize always. Absolutely. All right. I think we have time for one more. So let's let's get into this next one here. This one's by Caleb Col Colorado uh, from the Human Factors subreddit. Again, both Human Factors subreddit tonight. I'm really happy about that. So this one is called Your Day in the Life. Uh, Caleb goes on to write, Hi, everyone. Human factors is a field I'm very interested in. But when specifically looking for information on a, what a day-to-day -day basis is like for someone working, there is little to none. For those currently working in the field, especially those in medical devices. Wow, lots of medical requests tonight. What is your day-to-day -day like? Thank you. Barry, I suspect that you and I will both have the same answer that's very different. Yeah, it's it's very much of the um it depends, isn't it? It's it's all I mean, I don't have the um and it, it it's quite pertinent for us this week because we've taken on two new staffs and uh, two new members of staff and trying to explain what we do on a on a um you know day uh, day by day or even week by week basis. It just we are so I mean this is one of the things I think why we're so lucky to work in human factors because we have such an ability to stick our fingers into pretty much any sort of project that you that you can. Um I think on a structural thing, I tend to start off my day um, with some sort of drumbeat, uh, depending on the projects I'm working on. Um, certainly weekly at the moment, I have project drumbeats on a Monday and I have a team drumbeat on a Tuesday. Um, 
but then it can be design work, it can be developing presentations, it can develop customer engagement strategies, it can be like we did today was a bit of a workshop on on a potential future product and breaking that down, um, which was also a training event for for the new staff members. Um, tomorrow I'm going to do some um, university lecturing um, as well as do a I'm it's kind of a sneaky one. I got conned into a meeting on the. Um, um, so I, I was asked to go and attend a meeting, and they said, "Oh, by the way, because you, you do human factors, could you could come do a couple of human factors lectures at the uh, for this other department?" I was like, "Well, yeah, since I'm there, fair enough. Yeah, they did indeed." Um, and then next week is completely different again. So yes, I I think it's um, I think part of the beauty of what we do is saying what we do on a day to day basis is thankfully difficult. Yeah. What about you? What what, do, what does your day look like? Uh, see creative process. Um, t- take a stab at any one of those things that we talked about tonight, and I'm probably doing one of those. But again, it really depends on the context because I might be using a different tool on a different project depending on the needs of that thing, right? So, yes, it's no day looks the same. I check emails every day when I get in. That's about it. Like I check emails and and uh, messen- messages mess- messages uh, every morning. So that's that's about the one consistent thing I have. <laughs> oh, I, I make the pot of, I make the pot of coffee when I get in. There you go. Yeah, I wake up. Um, that's that's consistent. Yeah. Uh, get in, look at emails and chats, and then it really does depend based on what the need of the project is. Right. I could be in the middle of uh, making products to go out and talk to users. I could be in the middle of analyzing that user feedback. But again depending on the way in which we have defined the problem that we're trying to solve, the tools and the methods change from project to project. And so there's no real consistency. I might be doing one analysis on one thing that I've done in the past or a completely new analysis on the same thing that I'm trying out and talk about innovation on the show tonight. A lot of it is applying new processes, new procedures from other domains to the things that we're working on to establish that continuous improvement. And so it's always it's always different. It's always yeah. different. Okay, uh, I think we don't have too much more time. So why don't we go ahead and get into this last part of the show? We like to call one more thing it needs no introduction. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? So I'm going to cheat again and, and have two because the I've talked about climate a fair bit tonight. And one of the things that we did last week, which I was quite chuffed about, was for businesses, we've just launched a climate ergonomics guide. And so this is real practical. Obviously, there's COP26 going on this week. And um, the ability to – we were getting loads of feedback from businesses and, and people basically saying that, yes, we want to do something around climate change, but we don't know how to do it. We don't know, you know, fundamentally, how do you take that first step? And so we produced – thing based on ergonomics um, or ergonomic principles, basically behavior change. Um, a bit of a guide to throw businesses to say, look, there you go. That's how you do it. So if you're interested in that, you can go and find that at climateergonomics.org. But in a more of the uh, more of an abstract thing, we did something last weekend that was just fantastic. We actually had a party. Uh, we had a Halloween party, which was the first time we've had a large group of more than, I think, six people together in our house. Um, or outside of our house, it was it was in our garden, despite it being a tad cold. Um, but it was, you know, it was a large group of people that was together. We had a few drinks, we had a few more drinks. There was some, we had loads of spend a lot of time put the decorations up, and there was music, and it was just so nice, though slightly weird. Um, really weird, right? Yeah, it was just so. It was, you know, because half it was just people from the office anyway, so it was, it was a work. Half it was uh, work colleagues and that type of thing. So that. It's people you see on a day-to-day basis anyway. But then there was a whole lot of friends that we haven't seen um, for for ages as well. And so to have them all in the one place um, was just, there was still that sort of slight anxiety of two disparate groups coming together where two we'd had this worlds, party. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. But we'd had this party. So we do, we, we do like the Halloween party, but we'd had it a, a while ago, um, obviously just pre-pandemic. And actually the groups meshed together and it was all really good and all that sort of stuff. This was still socially awkward um slightly um <laughs> you know, just, were, the, the, and i think there was just a slight reluctance there for people to um to just um to just mix and thing and i think there's there's sort of two or three contributing things to that one is the fact that we just got out the way of being sociable um on a you know with 
randomly. Um, but also we're still nervous about the pandemic stuff and, you know, with the way things are going quite rightly so. Um, but it was still just nice just to have a party. So hey, Barry, fun. Barry, you, you know what the problem was? Um, it was the facilitator. There was, uh, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I did my preparation, though. We had lots of um, food and lots of alcohol and and covered areas because it was a bit cold. But but, I, but actually, you uh, we sort of said that maybe we need to invite just maybe 10, 15 more people to stop the allowing of, of the splitting. So... Um, but it was quite cool for me because one group was sitting down quite a lot, one group was standing up quite a lot, so I could get my exercise going between the two. It's fine. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, so my one more thing this week. Uh, I was very excited last we talked about the Pixel 6 Pro, yes. which is the new phone by Google. Uh, th- I talked last time about the experience buying it on the website. This time I'd like to talk about the experience of transferring from my old device to my new device. Uh, spoiler, I still haven't done it fully. It's bad, bad. It's really bad. Uh, and and like from Android to Android, that's a fine transition. From iPhone even to Android, it's probably fine. The problem that I'm having is I use a very specific launcher on my Android to customize to the way I like. You know, I, there's there's a dock at the bottom of Android that I like to be able to swipe left and swipe right. And all of my like... I need to get to this fast apps are at the bottom because it's easily reachable by my thumb yeah. Yeah. and they're all categorized on these folders. And I can't really do that with Android. I need a specific launcher for it. Now, all my apps, most of my data transferred and that's fine. That's not the problem. That's that's not the problem. The problem is with this launcher, it didn't transfer all my settings. And so I have to go in and manually put where I'm used to all these things there's a couple of things with Android that are a little nitpicky. Like I can't figure out how to change on the bottom. I usually have my back button on the right hand side. So that way I can reach it with my thumb. Yeah. Instead yeah. it's on, you know, the left hand side on Android 12, little couple nitpicky things. So with the UI, that's what's going on. But then there's also on top of that, this is an unlocked phone. This is the first unlocked phone that I got. And my wireless carrier which has a V in it. I'll just say that uh, for anyone <laughs> in the States here, you probably know which one. There's this whole, there's a lot of confusion about SIM cards. So ultimately what I did was I just pulled out this SIM card from my old phone, put it in my new phone. It was fine, but it was saying that you needed a digital SIM card and I needed to order one and it was trying to start a new line and I didn't want to start a new line. I just wanted to transfer it over to the new device it was just really weird the whole way, the the way everything kind of worked. I was very frustrated. I submitted a ticket and I still haven't heard back, but it, my new phone's working. So oh, I, I figured it out. It's just the whole experience was not great. And I was like, there has to be a better way. Um, and part of it's probably the launcher that I'm using. Probably half of it is the the other piece of it, the the, especially the transfer that one's just weird to me anyway you'd, you'd think sort of going between i mean nowadays i mean they, I, i'm i'm a an apple user um on the, on the phone front and and actually they've got quite good at doing yeah that. um do you think that android would be pretty much there because android do tend to be a step ahead in terms of cool capabilities um, you would hope so yeah, it's it's almost a bit disappointing to see that you, see that you're having such, and it must that must take a toll on your everyday mental health and and, and all that sort of stuff. So I hope you're writing all that down to, to get your claim in. I certainly have. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you liked this episode, go back and check out that other episode that we had on innovation. I think it was a couple of weeks back. I'm not sure which one it is. Anyway, comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For a more in depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can help support the show. One, you can do this right now. Leave us a five-star review. Wherever you're at, take just 10 seconds. Give us a five-star. If you want to take a couple extra seconds to write down this show is awesome, you can do that too. Two, tell your friends about us. That's even better than a five-star review because you're a voice that they trust. And we help build our audience by, you know, having people share it through word of mouth helps us grow three if you're able to consider supporting us on patreon like i said we're only two away from making this show fully self-sustainable and as always links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode 
Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today and helping me talk human factors. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about innovation? So you can find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K as well as on Facebook and LinkedIn, but also the 1202 Human Factors podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. Heard your most recent guest was charming. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.